definitely excited about another opportunity to hear God's word. And I hope you are too. Thank you for um, entrusting me with with the word. Um, it is indeed something that I don't take for granted. We have a unique lesson today as we continue in the chronology of Jesus Christ. We're about to transition into his ministry, um, but honestly, that's probably like five lessons out. <laughs> now that I think about it, <laughs> because, <laughs> because before Christ, we know that he had a forerunner, which is John the Baptist, uh, which we, we definitely can't skip over. Um, which will take us the entire uh, five weeks. So, please stay with me uh, as we go through it. Today's lesson will come from Luke, the third chapter, um, starting at the first verse. Even as we discuss this lesson this morning, um, some things will probably come to your mind that I either may say um, explicitly or just implied relating to this time period, um, your one-year Bible reading, uh, some of the weekly homeworks, uh, just you know, start to make some connections. And if you do, that's a good thing because that's, that's, really, the, that's really the goal. We understand scripture by applying other scripture to it. And so even with today's lesson, it's going to be important that we draw on the things that we already know, particularly in the Old Testament. I want to begin with where we left off last week. If we remember that three-part lesson about Jesus in the temple at 12 years of age. The end of Luke chapter 2 read, starting at verse 51, and he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject unto them. But his mother kept all these sayings in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. And then the, the scripture is silent for the next 18 years until the age of 30 with Jesus Christ. I would imagine that Jesus' mother spent those 18 years thinking about it, thinking about what she saw this day, this moment, and everything that she had witnessed in front of her very eyes, growing him up inside of her home. But we don't have anything in scripture to go by. So it, it, it leads us to make some, some assumptions, or make some inferences about some things that could have taken place during this time period. One we do know from verse 51 is that Jesus was subject unto them. That would be Mary and Joseph, those that God had assigned as his earthly parents. When it says he was subject unto them, it, does, it doesn't just mean that he went to their house, but it means that he was submissive as a child would be growing up under them. And that's extremely important that we remember that. He willingly chose to be submissive to Mary and Joseph. He grew as a child would grow 
going through adolescence and those things as he prepared and as God prepared him for his earthly ministry. I would infer also that he spent some time in his um, earthly father's trade, especially after he came back from this 12-year-old experience in the temple. Continued to work with Joseph, learn some things of the trade. Jesus was always and commonly associated with his father's business. This is the carpenter's son. This is the carpenter's son. So I would imagine with that statement being mentioned multiple times, it wasn't that he was just in his dad's shop or wherever, like one time. This is something that they would have witnessed over and over again. That also shows the faithfulness of Jesus, even to his parents. He was faithful at an early age. Also, it's believed during this time period before his earthly ministry that Joseph passed away. That is a pretty common belief. We don't know exactly when. There's a lot of speculation, but we don't hear anything else about Joseph. And every time you see Mary after this cross and other places, he is not there. And so many believe that Joseph may have passed away during this time period. Remember, I talked about the key being identification. That's important that I said that because even during that time, I would imagine that Jesus did some things. One, he probably comforted his mother during her time of grief, as a good son would do. <clears throat> I would also imagine that he had some periods of grief and sadness as well, because scripture leads us to believe that they were close, that they were close. So when we lose a loved one, and if we're talking about Jesus identifying himself with us, we have periods of sadness, grief, disappointment, loneliness, all of those things that I believe Jesus experienced. Those are just some inferences we don't have in the scripture. Um, but the key is identification. Luke does a great job. Remember we talked last week about how many people give testimony as to who Jesus Christ is. We had the angels, Zacharias, Elizabeth, shepherds, wise men, Simeon, Anna, Jesus himself. And now we get an opportunity to hear over these next weeks of John the Baptist, who has a unique ministry in itself. Luke has a specific purpose for writing. I do want to read that. Usually when a writer in the Bible begins his book or his writing, there's something that speaks to his purpose for writing. And Luke has that. So if you look at Luke, the first chapter, starting at the first verse, I'm just going to read the first four verses. It says, For as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us, even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write unto thee in order, most excellent Theophilus, that thou mightest know the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. There's two things that I'd like to point out in these first four verses. Luke is saying there's, there's a lot that has been gathered from witnesses, personal experiences, but none of that means 
as much as what he says in verse 3 when he says, having had perfect understanding of all things. So Christ revealed things to Luke clearly so that he would write scripture. And this is what he's saying. And he also says in verse 4 that thou mightest know the certainty. Luke wrote this book so that we would have no doubt who Jesus is and who Jesus was. He wants our faith to be assured. He wants us to be confident. Confidence only comes from knowledge and understanding of the word of God knowledge and understanding of the Word of God, and that's what he speaks to. This is why he writes this book. So we move into Luke, the third chapter, and we see something very unique that's about to take place in history, and that's the ministry of Jesus Christ. Remember, it's been a silent 18 years, not just silent with Christ, but silent also with John the Baptist. We haven't heard anything. And then he appears on the scene. For today's lesson, I can't get further than verse 2. <laughs> I've tried, okay? <laughs> I, I, can't, I can't get further than verse 2. And verse 2 is a whole lot of names, right? Today is kind of like a history lesson, so I hope you like history. If you don't, I'm sorry. Um, it, it is important that we set the stage to understand the, the time period, to understand the condition of what was going on. If we move past it, then we won't really understand why Jesus' ministry was so significant and John the Baptist's ministry was so important. So I do want to take some time to set the stage. I like to take some time to set the stage historically, politically, religiously, prophetically, like any of those characteristics, um, and they all are wrapped up in two verses. Two verses right here, and so I'm gonna do my best to present it. John the Baptist is 30 years old. It's extremely important that we understand the dates. Now, if you have a, a, a chronological Bible, it may be off on some dates. I'm gonna try my best to give proof as to specifically what year this is that this takes place. I'm gonna do my best with it. Even though some may disagree over time, there's some clear things in scripture that really should help us set the exact year. We know John the Baptist is 30 years of age. How do we know that? Because if we move down to verse 23 of Luke chapter 3, it says Jesus began his public ministry at, at 30 years of age, and we know that John the Baptist was six months older. And so it puts him right at 30 years of age. We can believe that for sure. Luke chapter 1 verse 36, if you remember that the angel appeared to um, Mary and said that Elizabeth is six months pregnant at the time that something was happening in um, Mary's womb. And so we know that there's a six month difference. So we have John the Baptist, 30 years of age. That's, that's important to the lesson too. And Jesus is 30 years old as well, which we'll see him later on as he comes to John the Baptist to be baptized. Here are some things that we do need to know. Now, I jotted some things down just to kind of help us put it in a certain year. When we go back to what we've already studied, we know that Herod the Great was the ruler during the time that Jesus was born. During the time that Jesus was born, remember he had the decree to, 
to kill all the male boys under a certain age and he issued this decree and they left and went to Egypt. And we remember all those stories that we talked about. And then we remember he was in Egypt and then during that time period, Herod the Great died. And then he came out of Egypt um, back into, into the land. History, everywhere you look, tells us that Herod the Great died 4 BC. That's a, that's a fact, <laughs> 4 BC. So you take 4 BC, you add 30 years to it, we have 26 AD, which is what I'm speaking to you today, telling you that that's the year. 26 AD, or AD 26. And that's because we know exactly the year that Herod the Great died. We know exactly the year Herod the Great died. Now, if you have a chronological Bible, um, it may put this time at 29 AD. And I'll talk about why that is as I move further in, in the actual lesson. But we have 26 AD. Here's other proof to, to assure you that this is the year. If you flip to John, the second chapter, it tells the story of Jesus cleansing the temple. If you remember that story, he comes in, he drives everyone out of the temple. Um, they were you know, selling different animals and, and raising a lot of money and the business was booming. And in John chapter two, verse 20, John is the best book to really give us a timeline because all Passovers during the time and ministry of Jesus Christ you can find in John. So we'll use John a lot, but in John chapter two, verse 20, I'll start at verse 19, Jesus answered and said unto them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. We know that he was speaking of his body, crucifixion, prophecy. They thought he was speaking of the actual temple that they were standing in. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? They said, this temple has been built for 46 years, and you're going to destroy it in three days? They didn't understand that he was speaking of his body. Herod the Great began building this temple in 19 BC. Fact, 19 BC. So if you take 19 BC and you add 46, that's AD. 27. That's AD 27. I'm doing my math right. That's AD 27. This is the first Passover of Jesus' ministry. So you go back the year before that when he actually started. That's 26 AD. It's 26 AD. Those two, and I have more, but those two really help us understand when this is taking place. It's important that we note when this is taking place because there's some very like wicked and evil people ruling during this time and we want to make sure that we're clear as to who it was. So we have AD 26. So it begins in verse in Luke chapter 3 verse 1 and it says Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iturea, and of the region of Trachonitis, and Lysanias, the tetrarch of Abilene, Annas and Caiaphas being the high priest, the word of God came unto John, the son of Zacharias in the wilderness. Luke is a great theologian slash historian. I think his accuracy with history is what makes Luke so fascinating. He, he writes things because he wants us to actually know when these things are happening. 
Luke's not just writing it so that we can figure out the year. He's really writing it so that we understand the times. But in order for us to do that, we have to understand the years too. So we have the first person, the first thing that's mentioned and it says, it says now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, this is where it gets confusing and this is why in some of your Bibles, if you're looking at chronological Bibles, it might say 29 AD because Tiberius reigned from 14 AD to 37 AD. So we say, okay, 15 after that makes it 29. This is where we have to go a little bit further. So. Before Tiberius, it was Caesar Augustus. Now, Caesar Augustus was the ruler early on. Caesar Augustus had the desire to pass this rulership down to his sons. He had two sons, both of which died before he did. And so he couldn't actually do that. So his goal was to pass down to his grandsons. He wants to keep it in the family, all right? But in order for him to do that, it would have taken his son-in-law to make this happen. His son-in-law was Tiberius Caesar. Right, so we have Tiberius Caesar. So what Augustus knew that if he would have died without a son, that the Senate would have chosen the next ruler and leader. He didn't want that. He wanted it to be passed down to his family. All right, Keep it in the family. So he adopted Tiberius Caesar as his own son before he died. And he went a step further and made him a co-Caesar. He made him a co-Caesar in 11 AD. All right, 11 AD. If you were a co-Caesar, that means you ruled and governed as well. So your Bible might say 29 AD because it's looking at when Caesar Augustus died and then it's tacking 15 years on there because he had died in 14 AD. But if you take when Tiberius actually ruled and reigned, it was actually starting at 11 AD. And you take 15 years after that, it makes it 26 AD, which is where we are right now. That's just more facts there, just a lot of information. Um, then we have, so again, that was, that was Augustus' plan to keep it in the family. He really wants to pass down his grandchildren. History says that he really didn't even like Tiberius Caesar. Like, they hated each other. That's, that's what a lot of history says. But he wanted to pass it down to his grandchildren because he loved his grandchildren, right? We can relate to that because we, we love our grandchildren, right? So he wanted to pass it down, and that's exactly what he did. Then we have Pontius Pilate. All, these names we're familiar with because all of them play an important role in the trials of Jesus Christ. So we have Pontius Pilate, who was governing Judea. He actually ruled from 26 AD to 36 AD. So he had about a 10 year period. He ruled Palestine, which, was make, which is what makes his ruling so significant. So we had the emperor, and then underneath we had this governor, and it was Pontius Pilate. Initially, this wasn't his area. When Herod the Great died, he, he split up his, his kingdom to his three sons. We had Archelaus, you have the other one that's mentioned here, um, Herod, that's Herod Antipas, and then you have the other one that's mentioned here, which is Philip. He split it between those three. But what happened is Archelaus died. Well, Archelaus, he didn't die yet, but he actually got deposed. They took him out of rulership because he was a bad ruler. <laughs> Just, so he really ruled from 4 BC, Archelaus, that's when Herod the Great died, to 10 AD, to 6 AD, about 10 years. He had Judea, Samaria, Idumea. He had this area. 
But when he was removed from power, they put prefects or governors in place, and that's where we have Pontius Pilate. So that's how he got that area. Then we have, now again, these are evil and wicked men, and these are all Gentiles. These are evil, wicked men, and they're all Gentiles. I don't think I need to talk about Herod's family because we know some things about Herod. They were just a wicked and, and perverted people. So we have Pontius Pilate ruling after Archelaus in this area of Palestine, Judea, Samaria, Idumea, that whole area. They just called it Judea just to make it easier. We have Herod the Tetrarch, this is Herod Antipas, who ruled from 4 BC, he had a long rule, to 39 AD. This is the one we're familiar with in the ministry of Jesus Christ, he's the popular one. He was given Galilee, so that's why we hear from him a lot, because a lot of Jesus' work and ministry took place around that area. The Jews hated Herod Antipas. They hated him with a passion, probably more than these other names, and for two reasons. One, he built Tiberius, the actual location on like a Jewish cemetery. History says that. And he set up idols in synagogues. So he set up this idol worship in synagogues. So every time they would come to worship, they would see these idols. They hated Herod Antipas. As I'm talking about this, and as I go further, it's very hard not to think about the Exodus. <laughs> It's very hard not to think about the Exodus for a few reasons. One, when you look at the Exodus, and this is probably where you are in your, in your one-year Bible, when you look at that situation, you see the, the people of God being oppressed and burdened down by wicked rulership and Gentile rulers. You really see that throughout. They're burdened down, and they have no relationship or communication with God because of their situation. And it's pretty bad. And Pharaoh was that ruler. There was a couple of Pharaohs that actually took place early on. But they were the rulers like that. And we see this same thing take place here. The good thing about that is God delivered them. What Luke really is trying to do as we move further into it, he's really trying to set the, he's really trying to get to the spiritual condition. You know that to be true because even when we transition to John the Baptist, John speaks about the spiritual condition of the people. He says, repent, repent. The message from God is to change your way of thinking. The message from God isn't to tear down the idols. The message from God is for his people to change their way of thinking. So it's all leading up to the spiritual condition, but he has to set the stage first politically so we can kind of see what's going on, to really see how the time has changed, to really see how the time was fertile for Jesus to come. Like it was perfect for Jesus to come because it was so bad. So we have Herod Antipas over Galilee. He just flaunts idolatry all in the people's face. They don't like him, they hate him. Then we have Philip, another Tetrarch. A Tetrarch initially was somebody that ruled a fourth of an area. It, it came to be someone that just ruled a, a portion of the area. So we have Philip who ruled from 4 BC, again after Herod the Great died, to 34 AD. So we have a good span. Many believe Philip was actually the best ruler. Um, he actually had administration skills and he ruled better than the others. But um, 
we don't hear a lot about him. He built Caesarea Philippi. Um, you'll hear from that a little more in um, Paul's journeys, but he built this place. He ruled Northeast Sea of Galilee. And then we also have Lysanias. This is where over history it, it got a little challenging because nothing else is mentioned about Lysanias. And when people began to research Lysanias, the only thing that they were able to come up with was someone who lived like between the 30s and 40s BC and was killed by Mark Antony. And so they said, okay, Luke is off because of that reason. But we know God, and we know God's word is a mystery, and eventually the truth will come out. And so after that, many archaeologists have dug up some research to show that this guy actually lived in this time place, and he ruled around 26, 27 AD, which makes Luke even more credible. And so this is what we have going on right here. So we have all of these rulers from top to bottom who, like Exodus says, and I like how Exodus began because the parallel in Exodus says there was a Pharaoh who didn't know Joseph. If you remember that, that verse, I think that's verse 8. There arose a Pharaoh who did not know Joseph. That doesn't mean it didn't have a relationship with Joseph. That means it had no relationship with God. And then we see this situation where we have these rulers that have no relationship with God. And so we just see the parallel there. And then when we move on, we see verse 2. Verse 2 really helps us to set the spiritual condition. We have two people that's mentioned here that's real close to home for the Jews. And that's Annas and Caiaphas. That's Annas and Caiaphas. You know from reading the Old Testament that the high priest and his priestly rule was from Aaron and his sons. Time passed. People moved further away from God. And what happened when Rome began to rule, they sold the office for money. So you could buy the office of high priest, right? And this is what Annas did. Annas is a very important figure that you might want to put a star next to. Annas is extremely important, even though we only hear from him a few times in scripture. He's extremely important, and I'll tell you why. First, he ruled from 6 AD to 15 AD, as far as his being high priest. He was deposed. It followed by his sons, five sons, and then Caiaphas was actually his son-in-law. Son-in-laws are really important in this, um, <laughs> in this lesson. So we have Caiaphas, who actually began his high priest service from 18 AD to 36 AD, all right? Annas was still living. Annas still had the influence. Annas really had the power in the synagogue and in the temple, even though he was behind the scenes. He was still controlling things behind the scene. You might say, Robert, how do you know? If you go to John, the 18th chapter, as we're getting further into Jesus' like trials, John, the 18th chapter, as Jesus is bound and taken to different leaders, verse 13 says, and they led him away to Annas first. 
Anna's had influence where they wanted to get Anna's take on things first, even though he wasn't technically in the position the high priest his son-in-law was. He still had that much influence. They wanted to know what Anna's thought. He was the guy controlling the strings in the background. So they brought him to Anna's first. And then it says, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, which was the high priest that same year. It says Caiaphas was the high priest, but they brought him to Anna's first. And then it goes on to talk about Caiaphas. So in the temple, the temple was big business. This is why, this is what makes John, the second chapter, so important when Jesus came in and began to, to move some things around. He was affecting the money. They were making a lot of money. The high priest's role was a very lucrative role. And Annas and Caiaphas and all of the sons before them, they made a lot of money off of this business. They were selling sacrifices, um, and there was no proper way of doing it. So if someone brought a sacrifice, because you could bring one in from town, they would look at it and say, oh, it's not good enough. Buy one of ours. And they made a lot of money. And so this was very disrespectful to God in God's home, in, like Jesus says, his father's house, in front of the Jews. So that it was in their face every time they came in and they came out. These were very depressing times. The Jews were sad. God's people were discouraged. They felt like this isn't what God promised in the Old Testament. This cannot be fulfillment of his covenants. Why, thing, why is this happening to us? This was a very depressing and bad time. This is not what they pictured the promised land to be all about. There is no abundance. There is no safety. We're being oppressed and ruled by people that don't even know God. Galatians chapter 4 speaks of it. Paul writes in Galatians chapter 4, he uses a phrase. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, after he speaks of bondage, oppression, particularly by the law, verse 4 says, but when the fullness of time was come, this is where we are right now in the lesson, this fullness of time. He says, but when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law. So when times couldn't get any worse, God sent his son. I'd like that to resonate because sometimes when you really think back on some dark times in your life, which I took some time to reflect on that even in this lesson, you may have felt like, I'm alone. You're calling for God, but you feel like he's not answering. Because we can't see him, and you know, we're touchy-touchy, you know, feely-feely type of people, you know, and so we can't wrap our arms around him and cry on him, so at times we feel like he's not there. And then in the fullness of time, he sends his son, Jesus Christ. He did it in the Exodus time period. He did it throughout Jewish history when they were in captivity. And in this time when it's the worst. We have all of that, and then we have 
a unique phrase here in Luke, the third chapter, it says, the word of God came to John, right? The word of God came to John, son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. I want to close by talking about this part. Up until this moment, we don't hear anything about John the Baptist. We know a little bit about John the Baptist, though. We know that based on Luke chapter 1, verse 80, it says, And the child grew, I'm referring to John the Baptist, it says, And the child grew and waxed strong in spirit and was in the deserts till the day of his showing unto Israel. Spent his time in the deserts. We don't know exactly when he packed his bags and left Elizabeth and Zachariah home and said, You know what? I'm out of here. I'm going to live in the desert. <laughs> we don't actually know when he did that, but we know that he spent his time in the desert. And, and unfortunately, I don't see any regrets about John the Baptist's decision, which seems kind of strange, right? Um, because this was a barren, this is the wilderness of Judea. It was a barren, just rough, hot, just not the place that we'd like to take vacation. This is where John the Baptist was. And he remained there until we have here where the word of God came to him. What's interesting about this is they mention that he's the son of Zacharias. You know that from previous reading. So you say, well, why did Luke mention this right here? Sounds like as accurate as Luke is, he would have just assumed that you already knew that and he would have left that out. There's a reason he put that here. Because remember, John the Baptist is 30 years old. And when a priest turns 30, they go into service in the temple. John the Baptist didn't go into service in the temple. He went here in service in the wilderness, right? Um, in a place that typically you wouldn't start a ministry, right? So most people wouldn't think, I'm going to start a ministry in the wilderness with no one around, right? That's typically not what you do. If you want to get the message over to the area where the need is, you would have went to Jerusalem and started to preach this word. You would have thought that's what, a, what would have happened, but God's plan is different than our plan all the time. So it says that he begins his service at the age of 30 in the wilderness. It said the word of God came to him. Luke uses this word in a unique way. He used the phrase in a unique way, unique way, the word of God, but he uses the word word in a unique way. There's two Greek ways of looking at this. Logos or logos is typically a general word. So like we talk about the word of God as the Bible, that's logos. All right, L-O-G-O-S, that's Greek. That's not the word that Luke uses right here. Luke uses rhema, a specific word here. There's a reason that he does that because John the Baptist is the last Old Testament prophet. You say, but he's listed here in the New Testament. I say, I say Old Testament because it's before the gospel. I said, before the gospel. And he follows the pattern of prophetic succession all the way down. And that's why Luke uses the word of God. He used the word of God. Because when a Jew heard that, they would automatically think about every prophet and how their ministry began. You go back. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Jose, Amos, any of them. All the way back, really, to Abraham. <laughs> it says the word of God came to this person in this year. The word of God came. So when the Jews heard that, they knew automatically that Luke is saying John the Baptist is a prophet. He's a prophet. He's not just a guy that can speak well or this weird guy that eats like weird foods. He's a prophet and he is the last prophet. So his message was not a, 
he, he wasn't, he really wasn't preaching the gospel. He was preparing people for the gospel. He had a preparatory message. He was preparing people for the gospel. We preached the gospel. Jesus came, he hung, bled, and died, and he, raised, and he rose again from the dead. That's the gospel. John the Baptist was preparing the people for that. He's this last Old Testament prophet. He's out here in the wilderness of Judea. That's like North Dead Sea. It's right over there, like east of Judea. And again, this is not the place that typically you start a ministry. But that's where John the Baptist is. Um, when we come next week, we'll look at the specific word that God gave John the Baptist in the wilderness as we move um, to verses 3 on. Because he, had a, he definitely had a unique message. Um, if you could bow with me for a word of prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, we come just thanking you. Thanking you for reaching all the way down to our need and giving us the greatest gift that you could have ever given us, and that's your son, Jesus Christ. Even when we've looked at our lives, we see places that are barren and places that are rough. We thank you, God, for sparing us for sending a substitute, for sending a sacrifice so that we could have a relationship with you. Even as we transition um, to take the Lord's Supper and communion, we ask that you would help us to prepare our hearts and our minds to remember the work of your son, Jesus Christ that we would make sure that we have confessed any sins that would cause a hindrance and that we would totally surrender and be grateful to you for what you did for us. We thank you for this time and this opportunity. It's in your son Jesus Christ's name we pray, amen. I'm going to read Luke, the 22nd chapter, as we prepare my um, hearts and minds for communion. Starting at verse 7 of Luke 22. Then came the first day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us so that we may eat it. Then said they, they said to him, where do you want us to prepare it? And he said to them, when you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house that he enters. And you shall say to the owner of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large furnished upper room prepared there. And they left and found everything just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. 
when the hour had come, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. <clears throat> Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after he had eaten, saying, This cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. The Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took the bread. And when he had blessed it, he broke it and said, Take and eat, for this is my body, which is given for you. For as often as you eat of the bread, you do show the Lord's death until he comes. But let every man examine himself. For he that eats of the bread or drinks of the cup in an unworthy manner, he eats and drinks damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. <clears throat> For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and many sleep. And he took the bread, and when he had blessed it, he broke it and said, Take and eat, for this is my body, which is given for you. For as often as you eat of the bread, you do show the Lord's death until he comes. But let every man examine himself, for he that eats of the bread or drinks of the cup in an unworthy manner, he eats and drinks damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and many sleep. In the same manner, he took the cup. And when he had blessed it, he said, Take and drink, for this is my blood, which is shared for you. For as often as you drink of the cup, you do show the Lord's death until he comes. But let every man examine himself. For he that eats of the bread or drinks of the cup in an unworthy manner, he eats and drinks damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many of you are weak and sick, and many sleep. And he took the bread, and when he had blessed it, he broke it and said, Take and eat, for this is my body, which is given for you. For as often as you eat of the bread, you do show the Lord's death until he comes. And he took the bread, and when he had blessed it, he broke it and said, Take and eat, for this is my body, which is given for you. And he took the cup, 
And when he had blessed it, he said, Take and drink, for this is my blood which is shed for you. Let us pray. Thank you, God, for what you did for us by sending your son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins, to take our place on the cross. Thank you for giving us the perfect lamb. Thank you for judging Christ on the cross so that we would have life and relationship with you forever. It's in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.